Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hey y'all, and welcome to another episode of the Birth Launch Podcast. Boy, am I excited to be back for another season of one of my favorite things that I get to do as an educator, as a doula, as someone who attends labors and helps new and expecting parents navigate pregnancy and postpartum and learning their baby, and that entire portion of life, this podcast has got to be one of my favorite things because it reaches so many people. And I've gotten to interview some of the most amazing guests. Uh, If you're new here, scroll back. There are literally hundreds of episodes waiting on you and it is just chock full of good information that will truly and seriously be a game changer for you. One of my biggest aims with this podcast is to provide people the space to explore and ask questions and dive into otherwise kind of taboo topics in, in some situations. And a lot of times we are talking about you know, the common problems and the things that everybody faces. But for the taboo topics, I also want to give people the space to explore those things to find what's right for their families. So this podcast over the years, I started it back in 2018, has just been uh, such a passion project of mine, um, but I absolutely love it. All right, so to kick this season off, I figured I would talk about one of the questions that I get the absolute most, and that is, how do I reduce my risk of C-section? I really don't want a C-section unless it is absolutely medically necessary. Of course, I want my baby to be here healthy and and safe, and I want to make the right decision for them, but if I can have a vaginal birth, that is my strong preference. With that, I think it's really important that we, you know, take some time to to think about the current stats that we have in America right now. One in three women are coming out of their birth experience with a C-section. One in three women are also being induced. And a lot of those, to be completely honest, are not medically necessary. A lot of them are elective. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with elective induction, but Many people either don't know their options, so they don't know um, that they can choose something different, and then many times people feel like they actually can't say no, that it's not an option, um, that their doctors said this is what they were going to do, or their doctor just put an induction date on the calendar, and they didn't feel like they had you know, the right to say no thank you, or I'm not going to come, or whatever it may be. Um, But you do. So if you're listening out there and that's you, you're in that situation where you have found yourself, you know, your doctor, you are in um, maybe disagreement on how you're going to continue your pregnancy. They want you to be induced at 39 weeks based on the ARRIVE trial and you really want to stay pregnant and wait for spontaneous labor. Um, Or maybe you were checking your online portal. This literally happened to a client of ours last week. Uh, Check in your online portal and you just see an induction date on there. It hasn't been discussed with you. 
you have not even talked about at all induction and you see that that is on the calendar for you, um, you know, you have the right to say, I hear you and I understand your recommendation, your clinical suggestion, but right now I'm choosing to decline the elective induction. And if it becomes medically necessary, you know, I'm always open to have this conversation again and we can pivot at that point. But until then, as long as it remains elective and waiting for spontaneous labor is a safe option, that's what I want to do. Um, you know, another very interesting stat is that more than 50% of people say that losing control in labor is their biggest fear. And when I came across that stat, I actually thought it was super interesting because, you know, fear is a funny thing. Fear, especially the fear around birth, is basically all because of the unknown. And things in the birth world are only unknown because there's a lot of gatekeeping, so I'm going to try and open those gates. That's exactly what I do with this podcast and inside the birth lounge and on my social media accounts. I try and give you access to the information that otherwise not may not be very readily available. And, you know, with that, I will say that everything has its place in labor. And I want you to be able to spot the things that are no longer evidence-based. And I want you to be able to advocate for your goals. And I want you to understand why you are either requesting or declining whatever it is that you are asking for or saying no to. My goal is to help you go into labor feeling really informed about your rights and your options. I want you to feel in control during that entire process. And that includes pregnancy, labor, the end of pregnancy, right after your baby, during your postpartum stay, at your six-week visit. I mean, everything. And your, your feeding journey, making decisions about your child and their sleep and their development. I also want you to be able to confidently navigate the hospital system and stay in control of the decisions that are made during your labor process. Because when I talk to people who, you know, have birth trauma or experience some inappropriate things in labor or were just downright subjected to abuse during during their birth experience, it always comes back to, I didn't feel like I was being able to make autonomous decisions for myself. Someone along the way had stripped them of that control. And so that's what I want you to walk away with. Um, I want you to know that you can advocate for your goals and really have a good foundation under your feet to help you make those decisions where you are confident, not because... You know, you are just so married to one idea, but you're confident because you know the options, you know what the data says, you know the risk and the benefits, and you know what you're comfortable risking, and you know what benefits are worth it to you. And actually, what I'm sharing is all from a live call that I taught inside the birth lounge. Um, I go live and, and teach for our members so that they can have constantly updated information and they can ask their questions and they can have this really high touch experience childbirth education. Um, and this is, this is from that. So, all right, let's talk about how do we actually reduce your risk of having a C-section and hopefully avoid it altogether for you. So number one, and I do not think this is going to be a surprise to anybody, but it is waiting for spontaneous labor. The debacle out there surrounding the 39-week elective induction in order to reduce your risk of a C-section, in my mind, is a total crock, and I feel like providers a lot of times use it in manipulation of patients to get them to induce early. So here's the thing about the ARRIVE trial. It is highly flawed because one of the biggest things that it left out was having a standard induction protocol, which means everybody in the study was induced using different methods and, you know, using different protocols 
So that's really hard to then take out in the real world and apply it to every person that is having a baby. Um, so for me, that really kind of makes the study null and void. Another thing is they do try and conclude, or I guess with this flawed data, they do conclude that you have a lower chance of having a C-section if you agree to this 39-week induction. However, it is so negligible. It's literally like 3 to 5% of a reduction. But when we look at actually inducing early, especially on a cervix that is not ripe, so that means your cervix is not ready for an induction, it is likely not going to be super receptive. Um, you know, we determined this by Bishop's score. I have a whole entire module in the birth lounge all about induction, and I also have a bunch of free resources on my social media, so check those out. Um, I'm not going to go into the induction here, but what I will say is before you agree to that 39-week induction because your provider has told you to reduce your risk for a C-section, you should actually truly look into that because the way that the ARRIVE trial presents that in information is quite sneaky deaky and I just want you to be aware of that. Okay so now that we've established that we've established that with spontaneous labor you definitely decrease your risk of having a c-section and here's why. When your body is meant to do something unless it asks for your help we can just trust that your body knows what it's what it's doing. It's literally designed to birth your baby. Now, there are cases, obviously, where we need to step in. Someone who develops high blood pressure or hypertension or cholestasis. There are a million things that may pop up in the end of labor or the end of pregnancy that will require you to consider a medical induction. So if you're high risk or something pops up that then needs medical attention, Yes, an induction, but for the people who don't have that, spontaneous labor is definitely better. Why intervene when we don't need to, you know? So there are a couple of theories of what actually starts labor, and one of them is the hormonal cocktail of estrogen and oxytocin. Now, estrogen and oxytocin, naturally both rise during pregnancy, and that oxytocin is partially responsible for contractions, obviously. Um, and the people who believe this theory believe that once these hormones, this oxytocin and estrogen, have reached a certain level, then labor contractions will start, and you'll be kind of on your way in, into labor. The second theory is your baby's lungs. Now, this is the theory that I tend to gravitate towards, but I have to be honest, I actually think it could be a combination of all of the theories um, and that each individual researcher has just found one piece of the puzzle. I believe the human body is very complex. Um, but the, the baby's lung theory says that when your baby is fully mature, they will release a substance that will then mix with your amniotic fluid that will trigger your body to release prostaglandins, which will then kick you into labor. Now, we know our old friend prostaglandin, yes, from labor, but also from periods, yeah, from our menstrual cycle. Prostaglandins are responsible for um, well, the cramping and also the period poops. It is um, like a hormone-like substance that... Um, you know, it just triggers everything to be released. Um, it triggers that cramping. Prostaglandins are also responsible for the effacement, so the thinning out of your cervix in labor, which is why when you need an induction, if you do not have a favorable, cer a favorable cervix, meaning your cervix is not very um, thin and maybe a little dilated, we'll start with prostaglandins. Cytotec, Cervidil, Misoprostol, um, there's a couple of different things. A non-pharmaceutical option would be a balloon, um, but obviously that's not prostaglandin. So you can see how prostaglandins are very important in this process. And so if those prostaglandins are waiting for that substance to be released from your baby's lungs, this would make sense. 
Okay, so the final theory, and just to be clear, these aren't like the only theories out there, but these are the most popular ones, I think. Um, these are the ones that I hear the most when people start to kind of think about the start of labor. I almost want to say debate because it typically turns into a debate of sorts. Um, but anyway, okay, theory number three cortisol and not yours but yours will hold up the labor process so if you are really stressed out and you are you know not keeping your brain distracted and you're not working on your mindset and you're not reminding yourself that your baby and your body know what to do and you're not relaxing your cortisol levels are going to spike and you know that will absolutely prevent you from going into labor. But this theory is about your baby's cortisol and it's believed by some people and there's actually some pretty good evidence to back this up that your baby's adrenals will release cortisol once they're fully developed and that will kick you in to labor. So pretty cool theories and you know, while we may not be able to agree on exactly what starts labor, I think one thing is abundantly clear, um, and that is that your baby and your body will do this process. They know what they're doing if they're given the time and the space. So waiting on that spontaneous labor, waiting on your baby to kick off labor can be so, so beneficial. All right, there's one study that I shared um, that I think is so fascinating, and I think that it is such a pillar in this conversation because it was such a large study. All right, so in Sweden, they conducted a 14-year study that had more than a million births in it, and they found that induction was associated with an increased risk of both C-section and vacuum extraction, even in women without documented medical complications. I mean, I don't really know how much more clear it could get from there. And then when you think about that in comparison to the ARRIVE trial, the ARRIVE trial had just a little over 6,000 participants in it. So, I don't know. You know, ACOG2 does recognize the risk of induction, even if your provider doesn't necessarily go over those with you. So the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has a couple of resources in regards to induction, and we'll link everything for you in the show notes, but in these resources, under the risk, they do mention the following. The uterus may be overstimulated, that you may develop an infection of the amniotic fluid called chorioamnionitis, your baby might experience an infection. You might have rupture of the uterus, which is called uterine rupture. Other risks may include funky fetal heart tones, contractions that are too strong, and that labor induction may not even work. And just like in the Sweden study, they also mentioned that you may have a need for assisted vaginal delivery or C-section. You know, one other thing that I think we have to talk about is that your due date is a guess. And it's an estimate as well. And when we look at human development, we know that there's a spectrum. Some babies are not gonna need as long and some babies are gonna need a little bit longer. We also know that only three to 5% of babies are actually born on their due date. So there is a 95 to 97% chance that your baby is not going to come on your quote unquote due date. Um, I encourage you to think about it more like a whole due window. Your baby could come anywhere from 37 to 42 weeks. And ACOG actually does have these weeks defined. So early term is 37 and 38 weeks. 39 and 40 are full term. 41 is late term. And anything past 42 weeks is what they call post-term. Now, when we look into what causes a post-term baby, ACOG says they have four criteria. And it is, number one, this is your first baby. 
<laughs> so that tells me everything I need to know. That tells you everything right there. Number two is you're carrying a male fetus. Number three is you have had a prior post-term pregnancy. And number four, uh, you are obese. And one thing I found interesting is when I was looking into post-term pregnancy as defined by ACOG, they do have a sentence on there that says most women who give birth after their due dates have uncomplicated labor and give birth to healthy babies. They do then go on to define the risks that are associated to post-term pregnancy. So if you're thinking about going beyond that 42-week mark, make sure that you understand what the risks are and just make sure you're comfortable taking on those risks and how long are you comfortable uh, continuing your, your pregnancy. Now, when you are searching about post-term pregnancies, the internet can get really scary about the whole idea of a big baby or what we call fetal macrosomia. So what does ACOG say about this? Well, they say that fetal macrosomia is not an indication for delivery and rarely is an indication for C-section. So the babies that they do recommend it being a C-section for are for people who do not have diabetes, an 11-pound baby or 5,000 grams, and for people who do have gestational diabetes, 4,500 grams, which is about 9.9 pounds. So we're talking about some really big babies here. They also do say that ultrasonography for estimated fetal weight in the third trimester should be used sparingly and with clear indications because we all know that not only is ultrasound very inaccurate in being able to predict fetal weight, but the bigger the baby, the more inaccurate it is. So if you're getting an ultrasound and someone is saying you've got a big baby in there, we suggest inducing or having a C-section, you've got some questions to ask, right? How big is my baby? Do I have gestational diabetes? You know, you really, you have to consider this. How are we diagnosing this if it's ultrasound? How accurate is that? A lot of questions to be asked may not be the right choice for you. And along the same lines with a big baby, we always hear about shoulder dystocia when big babies come up. So I wanted to look into if there was any data supporting the idea that we might be able to reduce the risk of shoulder dystocia with induction or by offering scheduled C-sections. And this is what ACOG says. At this time, and until additional studies are reported, suspected macrosomia, or LGA fetus, large for gestational age, is not an indication for induction of labor before 39 weeks because there is insufficient evidence that benefits of reducing shoulder dystocia risk would outweigh the harms of delivery. And in terms of infant mortality and risk of major complications, they do note that the risk increases sharply for babies after 4,500 grams or that 9.9 pounds. So what are the risks that you have a baby this big? Well, they say that for people who have their babies between 39 and 40 weeks gestation, the risk of having having a baby weigh more than 4,500 grams or 9.9 pounds is about 1.3. But for people who exceed that 41st week in gestation, the risk goes up to 2.9. Now that 1.3 to 2.9 is a statistic that you can see that it more than doubles and those words feel really scary. But when you zoom out a little bit and you realize that the risk overall is still less than 3%, so you have more than a 97% chance that your baby is not over that 9.9 pound mark, it feels a little better. Statistics can easily be 
manipulated in the way that they are presented to you. So just be careful with that and make sure that you understand the real numbers so that you can spot any sort of coercive care that you may encounter. All right, so I think that pretty much wraps up point number one, which is avoid an induction if you can. Give your body and your baby the time and the space to initiate this labor process on its own unless you know, you have a medical reason to intervene. Unless your body or your baby is asking for some help, you should let it do its thing. All right, so now that we are in spontaneous labor and we've given our body the time and the space, we're going to just remain home. Number two is labor at home as long as possible. The less time that you spend in the hospital, the less opportunity there is to have unnecessary interventions. Low-risk labors are safe to stay home until active labor or it becomes necessary to medically intervene. One of the biggest questions I get is how am I going to know when to go to the hospital? And here's what I tell people. You will know, but what most people are not expecting is how long labor is. So you know that rule that says you should dilate one centimeter an hour? Well, that is based on what's called Friedman's Curve, and it was designed in the 1950s, and it it actually is only applicable from four centimeters on. And you know what else was really, really different in the 1950s? Their C-section rate. So back then, the C-section rate was only two to six percent. I think that a lot of people are really unprepared for how long labor is. In the 1950s, it wasn't really common for people to have epidurals either, so that also probably contributed to their really low C-section rate. Now, remember how I just said that Friedman's curve is only applicable after four centimeters? In 2010, we actually got a new study that said it should be applicable from six centimeters on. And this study included 19 hospitals and more than 62,000 births. So I think it's, you know, safe to say that these results are definitely worth something. The final kind of result of this this study says that labor may take over six hours to progress from four to five centimeters. So not not, um, you know, two, four to five centimeters, but from four centimeters to five centimeters, this study found that it may take over six hours to make just that one centimeter. And then it says it may take over three hours to progress from five centimeters to six centimeters. So you can see how early labor from zero to six is really, really long. You're talking about 60% of the labor and in just two centimeters, you might spend nine plus hours just getting from four to six, right? So if we've been setting ourselves up for, you know, a centimeter an hour plus an hour or two of pushing, you're looking at 10 hours of labor and two hours of pushing, 12 hours, and that is actually a very, very fast birth for a first-time mom. Most of our clients, first-timers, have 24 to 36-hour births, and it's actually not uncommon for 40 hours to pop in there you know, when, when you have things like prodromal labor or you get sweeps and so it's kind of unclear when labor started versus when you were just kind of crampy from the sweeps. There's a lot of things that, that happen in labor in those beginning stages that can feel like maybe nothing is happening or that things are going super slow but you have to understand that for your cervix to open up to actually do that dilation part it has to be thin first and we would hope that that effacement would happen in the last kind of weeks and the days leading up to your labor but sometimes it doesn't sometimes you need a night or two of labor to get 
get that effacement and start that dilation progress before you're in active labor. And then once you're in, once you're in that active labor pattern, which is usually defined around six centimeters, then we find that people are progressing about a centimeter every two or three hours. Now, the study found that beyond that six centimeter mark, people with an epidural usually had 3.6 hours left in labor and people without 2.8 hours. So you're roughly looking at anywhere from two and a half to four hours later. And they conclude that allowing the labor to continue for longer periods before six centimeters of dilation may actually reduce the USS C-section rate. Of course, I looked up what ACOG says about this, and they actually do recommend delaying admission to the hospital for people who are in early labor and who remain low risk and your baby looks good. It's actually part of their approach to what they call approaches to limit intervention during labor and birth. Found in Committee Opinion 766. Here's the thing about being home. You're just a little bit more comfortable, right? And the hospital environment really isn't meant to be grounding and calming. There's a lot of beeping and there's noises and there's people in the hallway and there's people in and out. And, you know, up until recently, maybe in your area, maybe not anymore in your area, people are wearing masks and, you know, there's all sorts of things going on. It's kind of distracting. Um, and one thing that we know is in order for your body to relax and for your fight or flight to be able to be 100% shut off, you have to feel like you trust your team, like you are safe, like you can truly let your guard down. And if you don't feel that way, like truly feel that way, your body is going to automatically kick into fight or flight. And this is going to dramatically alter the process of labor and birth. You might see things like stalled labors. You might see things like your contractions go completely away. You might see things like your cervix actually kind of closes up a little bit. Um, there's all sorts of ways that your body might respond and very rarely is it positive, right? Um, a lot of times we see it really disrupt the labor process when you're not feeling safe. And so staying home can provide you that environment that you are comfortable, you are safe, it is private, you can control the lighting and the noise and what you see and hear and feel, the people that are around you, the people in and out. You have total control over that at home. So as long as you're safe to do so, you, you really kind of should, right? By staying home, you really reduce your risk of germs and infection as well. So first, you're just not in the hospital, which is going to drastically reduce your you know, risk of picking up anything. Second, the shorter amount of time that you're at the hospital, the less opportunity there is to give you cervical exams. And we know that with every cervical exam, the risk of getting an infection is kind of compounded. It builds on one another. There's also less chance for you to receive Pitocin, right? And if you're home and that fight or flight is not being tripped, there is a greater chance that your natural oxytocin is going to do what it needs to do. When you're comfortable and you feel safe, those surges of oxytocin can come as they need. But when you have, you know, light staring at you and people in and out of your room and lots of kind of beeping that you're not sure if they're good noises or concerning noises, those things are going to produce cortisol in your brain. And that's going to stop your labor. It's also, you know, could stress your baby out. Um, cortisol is something that you kind of naturally have, but when it is big surges, that's definitely not ideal in labor. 
All right, I'm not going to go into how to know when to go in the hospital because that's something I teach inside the birth lounge. But what I will say is you've waited for spontaneous labor, you've labored at home, and now we are at the hospital. The final thing that you need to know about avoiding a C-section that I think nobody tells you. See, everybody tells you keep moving, be upright, practice your breathing, what nobody tells you, and this is my number three, it's know the definition of failure to progress. So the definition is going to vary around the world, which leads to varying rates of failure to progress when we look at the data. But one thing we know for certain when we look at the data in the U.S. is that failure to progress leads to higher C-sections because so many people do not actually meet the criteria that are receiving this diagnosis. So there are three parts to being diagnosed with failure to progress. And the first two are what I find most people don't meet yet they received this diagnosis and had a C-section. Our team does a lot of VBAC births, and so this is how I have so many stories of people who had unnecessarians their first time around. All right, so the definition. You've got three parts. Number one, ruptured membranes. And this is something I talk about in all of the induction stuff in the birth lounge is understanding what each induction method means and how it impacts things down the road. Because if you use rupture of membranes, now you have just checked that off and you can't leave again, right? So number one, ruptured membranes. Number two, you need to be at least six centimeters. So again, in that new updated since 2010 definition of active labor. And then the third piece is no cervical change. And it depends on whether you are on Pitocin or not on Pitocin, but that's going to be four to six hours with no cervical change. But you have to have all three. How many people do I meet that say, well, I had, you know, failure to progress. I, you know, my body like failed to, to dilate. I didn't get past two centimeters. So, so they gave me a C-section. Well, that didn't meet the criteria. You're supposed to be at least six centimeters, right? We just talked about how long it could take for the body to go from four to six hours and all the work before that, hours, hours, hours. Labor is long, Labor is long. You know what breaks my heart? People who say, well, I labored for 16 hours and my baby wasn't here, so they gave me a C-section. Oh my goodness. Ah, Three characteristics, you guys. Ruptured membranes, at least six centimeters, and then four to six hours of no cervical change, depending on whether you have Pitocin or not. Birth takes time, you guys, right? And instead of stacking on interventions, why don't we try the things that we know work? So get up, get moving. If you have an epidural, let's turn that sucker down. Not to a place where you're feeling discomfort again, but to a place where you have good feelings over your legs, but you also have adequate pain relief. There is a balance there. And if you are so numbed up, then not only is that brain-body connection totally disrupted and your body is not being able to communicate with the hormones in your brain to tell your body to keep going with labor, it's just like stunned from all the heavy narcotics we just put directly into your spine. Your baby, the same thing. And so what we want to do is make sure that A, the placement of the epidural is really good. B, that the dosage is correct. It's giving you that pain relief that you're going for, but you're not completely, completely like dead, locked out, numb, right? And then third is we still have you up in kind of moving in different positions, getting your hips open and that pelvis mobile, allowing your baby to do those cardinal movements of that corkscrew downward motion that they do in labor, right? Get your oxytocin going, right? Do, oh my gosh, do some clitoral stem, bring a vibrator with you, do some nipple stem, bring a hand pump with you, have your partner lay in the bed and cuddle with you, make out, go into the bathroom, shut the door, make it steamy, Get that oxytocin flow and watch your your uh, wedding video. You know how many wedding videos I've seen? Hundreds. 
hundreds, hundreds. I watch birth videos all the time in labor because it gets you, gets that love hormone going, right? It gets that oxytocin flowing. We need that. In order to do these things, though, it requires you to kind of understand how the human body works, which is what I teach you in the birth launch. That's the foundation of it, is you can understand what the birth process is so that you know how to pivot and turn and twist and duck and bob and weave hospital policy and to navigate the hospital system and to always be advocating for your goals and to always be thinking ahead about the decisions that you're making and how will this impact things going forward the pros and the cons and the risk and the benefits right and the birth launch isn't geared towards any type of specific birth i teach you about the entire birth process the actual science and the hormones and how your body is actually going to experience and facilitate facilitate labor and then I teach you how to achieve that that unmedicated labor or what you need to know about having an empowered c-section or how can you reduce your risk of a c-section when you have an epidural exactly what we've been talking about right how do you have a positive induction how do you have a positive unwanted induction what if you didn't want it and it's medically necessary right Ah, failure to progress. You know, we already established what failure to progress is. So if you are stalled and debating whether or not to break your waters, don't forget that you have more than one option. You can go home if your waters aren't broken and try again. Also, you need to be GBS negative. So if you're GBS positive or you have signs of infection, you would need to stay as well once your waters are broken. Um... But other than that, if your waters are intact, you can go home. I actually did a podcast all about what you need to know about inductions with midwife Becca Healy, and that's episode 146, if you want to scroll back and listen to that. Um, but it's really good. You need to know that there are some situations where breaking your water is appropriate, and it will yield benefits, but... Sometimes, a lot of times, amniotomy is not recommended, right? And did you know that failure to progress is actually the number one reason for C-sections? Uh, the second is non-reassuring fetal heart tones. Um, so just know that. And then third is actually malpresentation. So a baby that is in a super funky position, which I find that Pitocin impacts that a lot. And I teach you all about that too in um, the birth lounge. But yeah, what else do I need to tell you about failure to progress? Oh, you know what? Here's the thing. If you are not checking your cervix often, then it's it's really hard to progress to diagnose you with failure to progress because we don't know if it's been four to six hours because we haven't had a, a cervical check in eight hours. We're just letting your body do its thing, right? Also, know why you would be saying no to these cervical exams that you're declining. What will it change? Well, if the answer is nothing, then don't have it. Do we need this information to keep going in labor? Is it going to help us make a decision about pain relief? You know, if the answer is no, then you probably don't need it. There are people who go their entire labor without having a single cervical exam. And you know what? Their baby is born. Their baby is born. All right, the last thing I want to mention is a 2022 Cochrane review that looked at cervical checks in labor, and this is what they concluded. Slow labors can also be a normal variation of labor progress, and the recent evidence suggests that if mother and baby are well, length of labor or cervical dilation alone should not be used to decide whether labor is progressing normally or not. So there we go. I think that if you can really nail these three things, you have got such a good shot of avoiding unnecessary C-sections. Now, let's hold space for the fact that sometimes C-sections are needed. 
But a lot of times, especially in America, we're seeing so many unnecessarians. And the problem is not the C-section itself. The problem is the trauma that it is leaving people with. And that is my goal with the birth lounge is to help you avoid unnecessary trauma. Um, and it's not some woo-woo stuff that I'm teaching. I'm literally teaching you the data so that you can go in and have these educated discussions so that when someone says, uh-oh, we're concerned because you haven't made you know, progress in about four hours, we think that we need to do a C-section. You can say, that's weird because that's not the definition of failure to progress because I'm only three centimeters and I should be at least six and also my waters are intact, right? There's not going to be any mistaking or... Um, accidentally diagnosing you with something that you don't meet the criteria for when you know what the criteria are and you can help have a really informed conversation with your provider about your wishes and your goals and that you know you feel comfortable continuing to labor and your baby is well and you are well and your goals are to just let your body do it and not intervene until absolutely necessary it's important that you know why you are declining things so that you can have these conversations with your provider. Also know the things that are really important to you. Know the things that you want to ask for, um, your preferences, your boundaries, things like that. That's what I teach you in the birth lounge. You guys, the birth lounge doors are open from now until June 9th at midnight. And I wanted to invite you to join. This is going to be the last time that you're able to join the birth lounge at the current price of $55. After this, the price is going up just because it is such a good membership. It is comprehensive childbirth education. When you join the birth lounge, you're not going to need anything else. We teach you everything you need to know about having a baby and carrying you through postpartum. We even teach you about newborn sleep, how to make a birth plan, how to make a postpartum plan, infant feeding, and this includes nursing, pumping, formula feeding. It truly is unbiased information in the birth lounge because you know what? I don't care what you choose. What I do care is that you're the one making the decisions and that you're confident in making these decisions, that you're making a decision out of a place of being informed and feeling like this is truly the best option for your family, not from a place of fear or feeling like you didn't know questions to ask or you didn't know what your other options are. You are going to have access to the secret sauce to pushing, scripts for advocacy, data-driven feeding support, science-backed childbirth education, and pain relief in labor. You also get free access to all of our other PDF guides, so our Pitocin guide, our induction guide, our empowered C-section guide, our epidural guide. You get live calls from me. You get a warm and supportive, judgment-free community of other moms. And the best part is just the latest research of everything that you need to know to have a baby and successfully achieve your birth goals because unfortunately, the American hospitals are not up to date. I did want to share a couple of um, testimonies with you, some feedback. So Jess says, OMG, 20 minutes, no tearing, and I got to be off the bed. All thanks to you. I'm so glad I didn't listen to the silliness at the hospital. Another person says, 20 minutes of pushing, no tearing. Another person said, I swear your methods are the main reason why I was able to push my baby out in just two minutes. Oh yeah, I also had an epidural. Another one says, I can verify that he's track record on this is excellent. I had an induction, unmedicated, and pushed for just 30 minutes. Another person says, I had an induction, I had an epidural, and I pushed for just 45 minutes. Another one writes in and says, I just got my unmedicated VBAC four weeks ago and in large part to you in the birth lounge. Recovery this time has been so much better. I truly do believe that the birth lounge is a revolutionary way to 
prepare for childbirth partly because I don't just teach you what your options are and what the hospital policy says and what you can and can't do in labor. I'm actually teaching you the how. How do you have these discussions with your provider? How do you communicate your goals? How do you, when you're in the labor room and you have an epidural and you want to get on hands and knees and your nurse and your doctor are saying, oh, you can't, you're not allowed, you have an epidural, it's hospital policy. How do you respectfully a, communicate your goals, and B, set a boundary of, I understand hospital policy, but I am going to move. How do you truly get your goals met within a broken healthcare system? My goal for you is not to have one birth over the other. My goal with the birth lounge is to help you walk away with no birth trauma, having a birth that you love, not having any tearing, not pushing for hours and hours. And you know what? That is exactly what the birth lounge does. I'm so excited that doors are open and I hope that if you're having a baby soon, you will join us in the best and most revolutionary childbirth education prep course that there is. All right, you guys, this has been so much fun. I uh, hope that you walked away with something that was super helpful. If you did, please head over to wherever you're listening to podcasts and leave me a review. And if you didn't like what you hear, just don't write that anywhere. That's perfect. You can keep that to yourself. Thanks so much. <laughs> All right, you guys, thanks for tuning in with me. I am so excited for this new season. It is going to be so much fun. The guests are rad. The lineup is awesome. Our topics are off the charts, and we're really going to help you have a confident and informed birth. Ah, I'm so excited. This season's going to rock your socks off. See you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident. Nothing in this podcast is to be used as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. As always, please consult your healthcare provider with any questions or concerns you have about your health or anything discussed in this podcast. Side effects may include educated adults, informed decision-making skills, and consensual care. Tranquility by Hee and the Birth Lounge are not responsible for any ideal births that were created with this podcast. The birth parent deserves all the credit.